So open your Bibles, please, to the book of Revelation, chapter 1, and we'll read together there, Revelation chapter 1. I hope you're, you will consider giving to the uh, 12 Stones Building Fund, and um, you do your part. I'll do my part, you do your part. That's how we'll do it. We each have a part to play, but you consider making a commitment to that, and I'm looking forward to what God's going to do through that program. And I wanted to tell you about the messages that are coming up in the weeks ahead, so uh, next Sunday, I'm going to preach on Thanksgiving. It's such an important um, connection between having the kind of life you want, the joy that you want in life, and your thankfulness for what you have. And then in the month of December, we'll look at Christmas blessings, and we're going to make it a special outreach month, and praying God will use it in a great way. And then in January, I'll come back to this book of the Bible, we'll continue working our way through. So let's read Revelation chapter 1. I'm going to read beginning with verse 9, quite a few verses, so follow along if you will. Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. The Bible says, I, John, your brother and partner in the affliction, kingdom, and endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet saying, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe and with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. And the hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronze as it is fired in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. He had seven stars in his right hand. A double-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was shining like the sun at full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He laid his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death. And Hades. Therefore, write what you have seen, what is, and what will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Well, let's note some principles the Lord teaches us. Certainly, the book of Revelation tells us about what's going to happen in the future. We see some of what's going to happen. We'll see. Uh, more about that as we work our way through this book of the Bible. But God also talks about what we do right now, and he shows us in the book of Revelation more of who he is. So I want to encourage you to write down these notes and follow along. And the first principle I want you to note is we have a great responsibility. And one of the reasons God gives us the book of Revelation is so we see in that book a little of the responsibilities that we have. And we have great responsibilities. We have opportunities that come with faith privileges, joys, but also responsibilities. And let's note four of them together. Um, number one, would you see we are connected. We are connected. Verse, verse 9 says this, I, John, your brother and partner. Your brother. Now, that's a, that word brother is a strong word. It means something. It means we're a family. We have the same heavenly father. We become brothers and sisters in Christ. If you have a extended family, a large family. You know something about the importance of that. Maybe, maybe you've seen it for good or for bad in your own life. The other day, Paul, uh, Paul Goldschmidt won the most valuable player in the National League, and Albert Pujols 
gave that award to him. They were both cardinals. And Pujol said, as he was announcing the winner, he said, I want to give this to my brother in Christ, he said, Paul Goldschmidt. Now, they were teammates, and that means something. And they're friends, and that means something. But brother in Christ, that's a strong thing. So I just remind you, in Christ, we become brothers and sisters. We're part of a family. By the way, you don't have to like strive to be the crazy uncle, all right? That's not, that doesn't have to be your goal in life and service. But God made us to be a part of a family, imperfect though we are. Imperfect though we are, but with a perfect heavenly father and a perfect savior. And so we're brothers. We're made to be together. We're partners, the Bible says. John says, I, John, your brother and partner. Partners in the business world have the same goal. They're headed for the same place. They want to make that business successful. And in Christ, we become partners. We're, we have the same goal. We have the same task. We have the same overarching responsibility. And we are partners together. And notice, this is written to the church, to, in fact, seven churches. The word seven here is re- and the book of Revelation often is referring to completion, the fullness of it. There are more than seven churches in Asia, but seven particular churches that God is going to speak to, these seven churches. And I remind you that God connects us with the church. And God made the church because we need to be connected. God wants us to be connected. I talked to a guy recently who... who um, talked about how much he valued the church, but there were two things in his life that fought against it. He was an introvert, and he was an intellectual. And if you're an introvert, you know something about that. Maybe you, you don't mind not being around other people as much, and you get recharged sometimes by being away from people. But you, you know, really your personality is merely, I mean, it's really a, a list of potential strengths and weaknesses. So we don't say, because of my personality, I'm going to disobey God any more than we would find any other reason as a valid excuse to disobey God. But as an introvert, he recognized how, hard, how easy it was for him to say, I don't need anyone else. I don't really need anyone else. As an intellectual, he could very easily say, you know, I can just read about this in a book. I can just find out the information. But he realized, and the longer he was in church, the more he realized the value of it, and the importance of it, the connection of it, that God made us to be connected. If you live long enough and you experience enough things in life, you'll begin to see perhaps yourself that God made you for connection, that God made us to be brothers and sisters in Christ, that God made us to be partners, the same goal and purpose, that God made us to be connected in the church, that God himself is the one who made it, formed the church, and calls us to participate. Secondly, note we are challenged. Part of our responsibility is to be challenged. And so here's how John says it in verse verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the, here's what he's a partner in, in the affliction, kingdom, and endurance that are in Jesus. We're challenged. He said, um, I'm your partner in the affliction. This is John. This is the guy who the disciple Jesus loved as he described himself over and over. I mean, he was close. He loved the Lord. He was an apostle and a disciple, and yet he faced affliction in Jesus. How can that be? It's because we live in a broken world. Did you know that? Listen, watch the news a little bit. You'll see broken world. You're broken, I'm broken, and everyone around you broken. Everyone in this region, everyone to the ends of the earth broken. Creation itself has been affected by the brokenness of sin that entered this world. 
We are broken. There's pain and suffering and affliction and problems. Now, the book of Revelation points us to a day when there'll be no more tears and no more sorrow and no more death and no more pain. It points us to that day, but that's not this day. This day is the world of brokenness and affliction and pain that has come because sin has entered the world. And John himself, this man who loved the Lord, the Lord loved him, and yet he faced affliction. There was a challenge that he faced. And he said, I'm going to be faithful in that affliction and in a partner in the affliction in the kingdom. John said, there's, something, there's just something bigger than me. Look, my life is not just what's in it for me and what do I get and what do I have and what do I like and what do I want. I'm a part of something big. I'm a part of the kingdom. Church, did you realize that? We're part of the kingdom. It's not just about us. It's not about our preferences, our likes, our pleasure. It's, we're part of this big, giant, worldwide thing called the kingdom of God. He made us for something more than ourselves. He challenges us to see beyond ourselves and to see that we're a part of something great, something big, something lasting, something eternal. The book of Revelation helps us to see how wide that scope is, how big it is to be a part of the kingdom. And then it says, I'm your partner in the affliction kingdom and endurance that are in Jesus. And there are some things you just endure. You just have to go through. I have a friend who is trying to set uh, the record for the most consecutive days of running a marathon. Is this not crazy? Yesterday was 44 days he has run a marathon for 44 consecutive days. Now, he started off really pretty running. He's a fast runner. He started really fast. And I'm telling you, he has gotten, he's had some really slow, a lot of walking in some of these more recent ones, great deal of pain. What, so what's it about for him? I mean, part of it is just endurance. I mean, there were days early on when he felt good. You know, he was in great shape. He, was in, he felt okay and he, good. He ran one of them. He's like an associate pastor in a church. He ran one of them uh, in a suit. I mean, you know, just he felt great, wonderful. He is now, there are some days when it's just about making it, finishing it. Slow, painful, it's cold. Sometimes you just have to go through. Now, God, if he wanted to, could just remove all the obstacles, right? So that we never have to go through the obstacles. And in heaven, one day there will be a day when there will be no more obstacles. But in this broken world, there are plenty of them. And sometimes God just says, instead of just saying, you're going to go around this, he just lets us go through them in this broken world, through them. And there is something to be said for endurance itself. There's a power to it, just endurance itself that says, I'm going to stay faithful, come what may. When it's not easy, when it doesn't feel so good, when it's not convenient, when it's not popular, when, when I'm going alone, there's something to be said about that. And we have a great responsibility because we're connected and we're challenged. Number three, because we're, we are persecuted. You were hoping I would get to that one, weren't you? Persecuted. Verse 9 says, John says, um, I was on the island called Patmos. Patmos is this island in the middle of the Mediterranean. It's real rocky, not very large at all. John was exiled to there, to that place. He had to live there. Couldn't leave. That was his sentence, his imprisonment. Well, why? He tells us here. I was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. 
because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Because I was faithful to what God said and I obeyed him and did what he said, not what the world said. And because of my testimony of Jesus, that I was following him and not following the world's way, the culture, I was following Jesus. And because of that, I found myself imprisoned. And I tell you, and can I just mention to, the, to us living here in the Western world, we sort of forget this. This day, this Lord's day around the world are people who are being persecuted for the cause of Christ, for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. They're facing persecution. People all over the world who believe it is that the Lord is so worth it. He is so valuable. He is so great. And that their responsibility matters so deeply that they're facing persecution this very day around the world for the cause of Christ. Because they believe Jesus is worth it. When they, when they sang, when we sang Jesus is worthy, they believe it enough to say if that means persecution, if that means suffering, some to the point of death itself for the cause of Christ. Let's not forget that persecuted church around the world who say my responsibility is so great that if it costs me something, if it costs me imprisonment or death itself, that's how much it matters. We're connected, we're challenged, we're persecuted, and we're, number four, we're commissioned. We're commissioned. So verse, in verse 10, John says this. He said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. That is, a, it's a Sunday. It's the Lord's day. It's called the Lord's day because of the day Jesus arose, Jesus rose from the dead on that day. And he was worshiping the Lord. He said, I'm going to worship the Lord. Just, facing, just because I'm facing affliction or persecution doesn't mean I'm not going to worship. And we can worship God anytime. And I'm glad that we can. I love that I can worship the Lord anywhere, any day, anytime. And we ought to worship God every day, anywhere. But there is something special. Boy, I hope you, I hope you have not forgotten how special this is. To be able to gather together, to sit over by my wife and sing praise to the God of the universe with you on a Lord's day. There's something about that. I don't want to ever lose the wonder of that. That we have the freedom in this land to do it. We have the privilege from the Lord himself. He is worthy of it. We can just worship the Lord. Do you see how big this is? Have you sometimes maybe, like many, just sort of devalued it? It's not as though it's just a routine or a ritual or a tradition in your life. Instead of seeing it for what it is, it's great privilege to worship the Lord together on a Lord's day. And John worshiped. And then notice John obeyed. The Bible says, on that Lord's day, John heard a loud voice, and it sounded like a trumpet. In verse 11, here's what the voice said. Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. I want you to write this down. Get a scroll. There's no, you know, can't type it. In John's day, write it on a scroll, and you just obey me. What you see, I want you to write that. What I tell you to write, I want you to write that. I want you to obey me. There's something great about obedience. And John just said, I'm commissioned to worship God. I'm commissioned to obey him. And we're commissioned to be others focused. Notice it's not just for his edification, but he said, send it to the seven churches. And these seven churches that are mentioned, we'll see them in subsequent weeks, something, a little bit of the letter to each of those churches, something that God sees in them, something that they need to learn, something that need, they need to change. And we can kind of oversee Look over the shoulder of John as he writes these letters and tells us what he's been telling these churches. 
He says, I'm commissioned to be focused not just on myself. It's not just about me, but it's about others. This is this great responsibility that we have, church. Great responsibility. If you remember back in philosophy days, Soren Kierkegaard said this. Soren Kierkegaard, as he talked about worship, said this. He said, we, we see worship like it's a play. I mean, that's one analogy we can use, like it's a big play. And so there's the actors, there's the prompter, the guy who tells the actors what they, if, if they forget the lines, he kind of prompts them to say it right. And then there's the audience, of course. And he said, the way, Kierkegaard said, the way we tend to see this is we see the pastor as the actor and God's like the prompter. He's prompting him in case he forgets what he needs to say, he says it. And then the congregation, that's like the audience. And he said, that's the wrong way to look at it. That's the wrong way. He said, instead, we need to see that the audience, they're the actors. And the pastor, the preacher, he's the prompter. And God's the audience. God's the audience. That's a different way of looking at it, isn't it? When we see that we have this responsibility before God. Or if I could put in an analogy that works better for me, I'll just use the analogy of sports. If you were watching any football games yesterday or if today you're watching some football games, there'll be thousands of, just thousands of fans in the stadium. And we watch, and just a few, there's just a few players. And we'll watch that and we'll think, that's how Christianity is. We watch, we observe, we evaluate, we second guess, we give our suggestions, but we're the fans. We're the spectators. That's how many people view Christianity. And by the way, if you do that, welcome to the giant club. That's how many people, especially in the Western world, view the faith. Just like spectators. We're just fans who sort of watch. And the Lord is saying to us, I, don't, I didn't make you to be a fan or a spectator. I want you to get out of the stands and you get in the game. That's, what you, that's your place. Every member is a minister, we say. Every Christian has a responsibility. We all have a job to do. So you're on the field. Now the field is a lot harder. It's, it's difficult. There's sacrifice. There's blood and sweat and tears on the field. It's easier to be in the stands and just evaluate. It's safer. There's less risk. There's less pain. There's less difficulty. There's less sacrifice. But God is saying, I want you on the field. I made you to be involved. I, I give you this great responsibility. The book of Revelation is calling us to take our responsibility and to see that we have a place to participate and that we're not just watching someone else minister. We're the we're the ones, the, those of us who name the name of Christ, we're the ministers. So who is it that witnesses to our friends? Who is that? Is it someone else? Who is it that serves? Is that for someone else? We see ourselves sometimes as the fans. Where that guy's doing it, and I'm doing okay. God's saying, no, you get down in the place of sacrifice and service and blood, sweat, and tears, and God will do his work through you. Even if it means sometimes affliction. And sometimes, as in the case of John, persecution. We find ourselves on an isle like Patmos because God made us to be connected and he gave us these great challenges and he calls us even to serve him through persecution because we're commissioned by God 
to serve. Don't miss this. In the book of Revelation, when we talk about what God is going to do, don't forget that God has given us responsibilities now. In fact, even by telling us what is going to take place in the future, he does that as a means of helping us to see how we can live right now. Not just what things will be like one day, but what God wants from, from us this day. Let's note a second principle. I said we have a great responsibility, but secondly, this passage shows us we have a great Savior. And one of the things the book of Revelation does for us is to show us more of who Jesus is. And sometimes we have a very small view of Jesus. We see a little part of who Jesus was, but we can miss the totality of who he is and what he is, what he is doing and the greatness of our Savior. So let's note three things about our Savior from this passage. Number one, would you note he is our champion? If you're a note taker, you ought to write that down. He is our champion. Now I know Jesus came into the manger as a child. We'll talk about that a lot at Christmas time, of course. But that's not the totality of who Jesus is, right? The baby in the manger is important to us. We need to understand that God became a man. Emmanuel, God with us. That matters. But it's not the fullness of who Jesus is. We see Jesus in the pages of the Bible meek and lowly. I am thankful for, for the example of the Lord who would wash the disciples' feet, who would care about people that others don't care about. But we see in the book of Revelation more of who Jesus is, not just the earthly ministry and those brief years, but we see the greatness, the power. Let's note what the Bible says here about our great champion. In verse 12, the Bible says, Then I turned, John says, Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man. This is that great description Jesus often gave of himself. He identifies with us, the Son of Man, God who had become a man. And notice what the Bible says then. He's dressed in a robe and with a gold sash wrapped around his chest. Before MMA was so big, boxing was big in, in my day, and I, I couldn't help but think of like the Ali or Frazier or Foreman or someone like that, the great boxers coming out in their robes. Or if you remember the Rocky movies, I think there's like 20-something of them, I don't know, Rocky movies, and Rocky comes out in the robe. And here's our champion in this robe with a sash around him, the champion. He's great and powerful. The Bible describes him in verse 14. The hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow. His eyes like a fiery flame. John's seeing something more of the greatness of the Lord. Verse 15. His feet were like fine bronze as, as it's fired in a furnace. And his voice like the sound of cascading waters. And it's, he doesn't see just, it's not just the baby in the manger. That's certainly an important part of who Jesus is and what he did. But man, this is the power of Jesus. Verse 16. He had seven stars in his right hand and a sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth and his face was shining like the sun at full strength. And we see John saw here something of the greatness of our champion. He's great and he's powerful. And you know why we see him like this? Because we need his greatness and we need his power. God doesn't just say, hey, uh, do it in your own power, man. Work your way up to heaven if you can. Good luck with that. You know, kind of self-improve. You can self-improve. Just all, all you got to do is self-improve all the way to perfection. Just get perfect. Man, we are, man, what hope do we have? We need the greatness and the power of the Lord. It's like a little boy who drops a toy, a little child drops a toy under a couch. You know, couches today are so light, you know, just amazing. But the old school couch, you know those old school couches? Before you say yes to helping someone move, 
Ask them how old the couch is. Find out if it's one of those sleeper sofas. You know, that's, that's going to matter. Those old couches were so heavy. I mean, they were built to last, but they were heavy. And, man, that little child drops a little toy under there. and He doesn't have any hope of picking up that heavy couch. He can't do it. It's too great for him. But he might call old dad to do it. Dad's sitting over in the, you know, recliner watching the football game. Dad, I can't get it. Can you? And dad can get up from that recliner, big old strong dad, and pick up that couch. That little boy has no hope to do it. Pick up that couch, and that little boy can get that toy. A thousand times, a million times, ten million times beyond that, God meets us at our need and the things that we can't do. This is too great for us. That affliction is too great for me. This pain, this problem, this difficulty, this grief, this loss, this hurt, this wound, too great for me. But, man, we have a great and powerful champion who can meet us at the greatest needs of our life, who cares about us in those greatest, deepest needs, who does for us what we cannot do for ourselves, who can give us salvation that we could never earn in our own strength. We're not strong enough. We're not able. We're not capable. He is our champion. Secondly, note, he is our hope. Verse 17, I love how this is described. When I saw him, when I saw him, John said, well, what does John do? Do you remember the song, I Can Only Imagine? It was a Christian song that made it, kind of went across the spectrum and it became a huge hit, I Can Only Imagine. And the, the songwriters imagining what things would be like in heaven. What will I do? You know, will I sing for you, Jesus? Will I dance for you, Jesus? Notice what John does, verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. That was his response. Man, when he saw the greatness of God, he saw the need of his own life. If you think of God as small, it's, because, it's very likely because of you, you think of yourself as way bigger than you really are. But when you recognize your need, and John just fell at the feet of his Savior like he was dead because he saw the greatness of this champion and because he saw the hope. I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he laid, he laid his right hand on me, the Bible says. And I love that God just cares about us. Unworthy though we are. Broken though we are, he laid his right hand on me and he said, don't be afraid. And if you hear fearful and doubting, worried, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last, Jesus said. He's a great, he's a great warrior. The first to go to battle, the last to leave the battlefield. He's the living one. He describes himself that way, the living one. That is his nature. That's who he is, the living one. I was dead, he said, but look, I'm alive forever and ever. Jesus died for us. You remember that truth of the gospel that Jesus took our place. He took our death on the cross. Jesus died for my sins on that cross, for your sins on that cross. He took your place, and Jesus died. But not only did he die for us, for our sins, but he gave us the miracle that we needed. Christ rose from the grave. He rose from the dead. He provided the miracle that we need. And Christ said, I'm alive forever and ever. He said, I hold the keys of death and Hades. The keys of death, the keys of Hades, the, the fullness of death and all that it stands for, all that it means, all that transpires. Jesus said, I hold those keys. I unlock that door. Death with all of its pain, I hold those keys. Sin with all the bondage it puts us in, Jesus said, I hold those keys. 
the grief, the separation, the loneliness, the heartbreak, the hurt. Jesus said, oh, man, I've got the keys. He is our hope. And when we see Jesus in the book of Revelation, we see him not just as the baby that came in a manger, as great as that is, but we see that baby who lived for us the perfect life and died the death we deserved and rose from the grave for us and rules as king of kings and lord of lords, the great champion, the one who provides hope for us, the one who holds the keys to death and hell and pain and loss. And Man, I am thankful for that. He is our champion. He is our hope. And then thirdly, he is our protector. He says in verse 19, therefore, write what you've seen. John, write this. What is and what will take place after this. Tell what's going to take place. And then he gives him a kind of a clue to what is going on. In verse 20, he says, the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand. Remember the seven stars that I hold in my right hand? And of the seven golden lampstands that I'm in the middle of? Those seven stars, he said, are the angels of the seven churches. The angels of the seven churches. I have an angel for those churches, an angel that is ready to do my beck and call. The seven churches are my churches. I'm in the middle of the seven lampstands. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. We'll see more about each of those seven churches, really representing all the churches of all the ages. We'll see more about them in the weeks ahead. He is our protector. He's the one who holds the stars in his right hand, who stands in the middle of the lampstands. Let me note two things about God here. First, I want you to note that God is in charge of the church. God's in charge of the church. He's the Lord. He's the Lord. Technically speaking, now we, say, we can say this is our church, I mean, of course, because we're a part of the family and the body. But in its deepest sense, it, this, this is not my church, nor yours. This is God's church. It's his. He's in charge. We say as a church we want to be God-centered. We want to find God's will and God's purpose and God's plan. And we ought to say that. Because it doesn't matter what our purposes and our plans are ultimately. We need to find God's purpose and God's plan. It's his church. He's in charge. He's Lord of the church. And he's to be Lord of this church. And we can, have, we can be caretakers for a time in the church. We have a role to play and a part to fill. But this is God's church. And we ought to always honor that. We ought to have the recognition of the greatness of the task we have. That we are doing the work that God calls us to do. We're participating with the God who made the universe. This is his. He's in charge of the church. And secondly, God is in control of the church. He's in control. He's accomplishing his purposes. He holds us. He, it's his light that shines from our lampstands. So FBCO is, if my math is right, 155 years old next year. And in just a couple of months, we'll be 156. And I say if my math is right because um, at midweek worship, I said, Vicki and I have been married over and over. I said almost 42 years. And I was reminded when I got home, it's almost 41 years. I was just off one year. I, in my defense, I was just off by one year. I was pretty close to how long we've been married. So if my math is right, FPCO, this church, 155 years old, soon to be 156, and God's been in control. There are times when things went really well, and there are times when things didn't go so well. The church, as some of you know, the church in a small little, this is a small little community for so much of its history, just a tiny little 
dot on a, on a railroad map in many ways. There are times along the way when the church struggled. There were times when it really thrived, but there were times when it struggled. Many of you know that several decades ago, the church almost closed. They met to decide whether or not to keep the doors open. But God was in control. God's been in control when we've done when we've been weak, and God's been in control when we've trusted him more deeply. He's in control. For the 27-plus years now that I've had the privilege of being the pastor here, I've been reminded that it is God's church, that he is in control. I'm, just a, I'm a caretaker for my little part of the responsibility for a period of time, however long the Lord gives. And should the Lord tarry, and should the Lord give us 155 more years, he will be in control then. He's moving and working in ways that sometimes we don't see. And he allows us to be a part of what he's doing in this big world. And we get to shine the light of Jesus. It's not our light. It's his light. We get to shine the light of Jesus in this community and beyond. And to the ends of the earth, by the way. We get to be a part of what God's doing among every tribe and nation and language and culture. God works through this one little place. God is accomplishing his purposes because he's in charge. It's his. He's in control. He's working. And we get to be a part of what he's doing because he is a great savior. And if you've seen Jesus as sort of a nice little, like maybe you know, give you a little advice when you have some problems and trouble. Listen, God is so much bigger than that. And I want you to see he's a great savior. And he's bigger than whatever problem you brought to this place, whatever need you have, whatever struggle is going on, whatever's going on in our culture and our world and the surrounding things around us, he's so much greater. And this great Savior gives us a great responsibility. And let's say yes to him. Will you bow with me for a word of prayer? And as we pray, perhaps God is speaking to your heart about trusting him as Savior. Some of you, when I talked about the gospel message, the Lord just used that to convict you that you're a sinner who needs a Savior. And would you repent of your sin and place your trust in Jesus who died for you and rose from the grave for you and give your life to Christ and he'll save you today, right where you are. You can be saved. Maybe God brought you to this place and to this moment to this understanding so that at this hour you could give your life to Christ and find salvation. Christian, I wonder if you wouldn't say, God, I want to be reminded of how big you are because you called me to a great responsibility. Connected and challenged and even persecuted and commissioned. But sometimes I've not noticed that very well. I've almost forgotten that I have a responsibility. So Lord, this day, in light of the greatness of who you are, help me to see the greatness of my responsibility to you and to say yes to you. And Father, I want to thank you for your word and the power and truth of it. I want to thank you for showing us more of what we are to do in this world of time and space and the brief moments you give us here. And I want to thank you for showing us more of who you are and your greatness and your power and your might so that we see you are worthy. You are worthy in the good and the bad. You are worthy. And we thank you for the privilege we have to, to participate in what you're doing in this world. For our church as a whole. And for us individually. Help us to say yes to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.